Welcome to um, part three of my survey of the new biographies that are coming out or, or have come out in 2021. I'm only going to deal with three biographies today. And as with the other biographies uh, that are new, um, I have not yet read all of these books. I've read in them. I've read parts of them. And I'm really sort of introducing them to you and to myself and suggesting a little bit about why you might want to read these books and why I might want to continue reading. My only criteria, as I said in an earlier podcast, is do I want to keep reading, given what I've read so far? And for this episode, I want to deal with, um, I guess what I'm going to call show business biographies, which might mean simply biographies of an entertainer, a musician, uh, artists of all kinds, you could say, but show business, meaning actors, especially, directors, producers, those sorts of people. Who writes these books, these kinds of show business biographies? It used to be just journalists and people in the entertainment trades. Now lots of academics have gotten in uh, on it. And this is really... Um, uh, this began really in the late 1980s when I wrote my Marilyn Monroe biography, as I've said in previous podcasts, and published it in 1986. Um, there weren't any university presses um, it, publishing biographies of movie stars. Directors? Yes, especially because of the auteur theory. Uh, but not so much actors and actresses, unless they were, you know, sort of classic actors of the stage or... Uh, of the 19th century and so on. But the field has really changed in that respect. Now that you pick up a biography of someone who's in music or show business, and it may be well, very, may very well be by a college professor. First book I'm looking at, and you'll, you'll see that there's a theme in the books that I've, I've picked. Um, the title of this is, You Are Beautiful and You Are Alone, The Biography of Nico by Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke. Um, I don't know anything about the author, to tell you the truth. It was published by Hachette. I know nothing about Nico until I started reading this book. And I want to read you from the, the flap and then a little bit of the author's prose to give you some sense of this biography. Over the course of her career, Nico, N-I-C-O, was an ever-evolving myth. Art house film actress, highly coveted fashion model, Dietrich of punk, femme fatale, Chelsea girl, garble of goth, the last bohemian, heroin junkie. Lester Bangs described her as a true enigma. At age 27, Nico emerged as one of Andy Warhol's newest superstars, starring in his notorious film, Chelsea Girls. Now, I saw that many years ago. Didn't realize that was Nico or for forgotten it was Nico. She became the chanteuse for the Velvet Underground. Her striking beauty, combined with her otherworldly and unattainable presence, was further amplified by her reputation for dating rock stars like Brian Jones, Bob Dylan, and Jim Morrison. In other words, Nico became famous for being Nico. 
And yet with so much focus placed on her looks, Nico's unique creative talent and contribution to rock culture are often overlooked. The way she looked meant that she was overlooked. Those are my words. I'm still reading from the jacket flap. I kept thinking about Marilyn Monroe, which I'm going to have something to say about a little bit later. Nico spent most of her career as a solo artist on the road, determined to make music seemingly against all the odds, enduring empty concert halls, abusive fans, and the often perilous reality of being an aging artist and drug addict. She created mesmerizing and unique projects that inspired a generation of artists, including Henry Rollins, Morrissey, uh, a name I don't even know, Sisu Sisu, and the Banshees, and Iggy Pop. Well, that's just a little bit about her, and as you can tell, I know nothing about this world. I don't even know how to pronounce the names, which is one of the things that biography can do for us, of course, is introduce us to a, a whole new world of personalities and movements and themes. Now I'm going to read just a few paragraphs from the introduction uh, because it struck certain uh, important points I want to make as a biographer. Introduction, it, co it comes with an epigraph. What I have in common with Nico is the understanding of her furious frustration at not being recognized. Now who said that? Marianne Faithful. Now, these are the first words of the introduction. Uh, again, by Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke. I was very, very late discovering Nico. One night I was out with a friend discussing our personal female rock heroines. I was both surprised and mortified to find that compared to all of the men in music that we loved, the list of women we could come up with was woefully short. Upon getting home, I did a bit of research to see what fantastic females I had forgotten. I came to Nico. She was in the Velvet Underground for that one crucial record. She had that Chelsea Girl album. But what else? I started to look a little bit deeper into her life. My years as a PhD student researching pop culture making it natural for me to crawl down the rabbit hole of this enigma's history. At the beginning... I assumed I would unearth the usual story of rock highs, lows, a comeback, and an eventual career playing at county fairs and heritage gigs. What I found instead was a life and a myth that became more surreal the further I dug. Almost every aspect of Nico's life has been haphazardly recorded, if accurately chronicled at all. The repetition of the same anecdotes is somehow mutated random incidents specific to contextualized moments into grand brushstrokes of overarching truisms. Now that sentence really hit me. Let me read that again. The repetition of the same anecdotes has somehow mutated random incidents specific to contextualized moments into grand brushstrokes of overarching truisms. I have found that to be so in lots of biographies of show business people, musicians and actresses and artists, the same anecdotes circulating that become what people know about these artists. 
This biography go, biographer goes on to say, the more I tried to find out the real ne who the real Nico was, the greater the rupture became between the oft-repeated myths, the few documented facts, and the personal memories of those who knew her best. Any new crumb of information was hard-won and precious, often the result of weeks spent digging in dusty and long-forgotten archives. Archives, as you'll see, are going to become the important theme of this podcast. Months of scanning through old microfiche and countless emails and phone calls, all in the hope of discovering something not previously known. More than a hundred new interviews were carried out in pursuit of establishing a more rounded understanding of the icon. What emerged was a didactic example of apathetic misogyny and stereotyping on the part of written history, a narrative that lazily rests upon the familiar, salacious, and utterly predictable realms of sex, drugs, and rock and roll excess without acknowledgement of the unique and often unnervy life circumstances of the singer. Notice the language here. It's almost abstract in the sense that it could be about a number of different lives, not just Nico's. That's what got me to this. This is, this, this is you're getting an insight in the way a biographer works. At first, it seemed too simplistic to blame the quagmire separating the two versions of Nico on nationality, misogyny, and expected cultural expectations. Yet the more I learned about her, the more obvious this explanation became. There were very few women writing about and documenting rock music at the time, and even fewer brave enough to break societal expectations of what or how a female could be an artist. This meant an often one-sided narrative was created and perpetuated about Nico, as there was no other as as there were no other female voices to challenge it or to offer a counterpoint. It's what I felt I was up against when I was doing a biography of Monroe in the 1980s. It's very different now. There are many biographers, uh, some of them women, who have corrected the record and have seen her in a much broader context using a Monroe archive. Yes, she did write letters. Yes, she left behind all kinds of material objects which tell you so including her library, which tell you so much more about her than the first biographies even, even dreamed of. I did a little bit of that in investigating her poetry, for example. So this is what attracted me, N not just the subject, but the way the subject is being handled by the biographer, the way the biographer discovers the story. When you look at this book, it's a thick book. It's, a, it's almost 500 pages if you include the notes and, uh, and the, the bibliography. Uh, it's a very substantial work, I can tell, even though I've read so little of it. So again, You Are Beautiful and You Are Alone, The Biography of Nico by Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke. The next book is titled Reframing Vivian Lee, Stardom, Gender, and the Archive by Lisa Stead. Sounds like a very academic title. And it is in many ways, certainly an academic book. It's published by Oxford University Press. But it has so much to say about biography and how biographies are put together. Uh, and we, lo we learned soon why it's called reframing 
uh, Vivian Lee. I'm going to read you again from the introduction, which has a subtitle, Into the Archives. This is the way the book begins. This is a book about Vivian Lee that is, in a way, not about Vivian Lee. Primarily, this is a book about archives, their frustrations, their promise, their complexity, and their potential to reframe and reimagine film histories. Carolyn Steedman suggests that an archive is made from selected, selected and consciously chosen documentation from the past and also from mad fragmentations that no one intended to preserve and that just ended up there. In giving attention to such chosen and seemingly more random documentation as it emerges from the archives of a star, this study takes a new look at the laboring life of one of the 20th century's most iconic female performers. Vivian Lee, exploring material documents collated by her own hand and by those who knew and worked with her, but also by those who have developed deep, long-standing fandoms of her life and work. The fans are really important because they collect so much material. Constance McCormick collected a lot of the fan magazine material, put it in her collection at USC, University of Southern California, in the Cinema and Arts Library. By chance, I happened to meet her there one day uh, when she was visiting her own collection. Extraordinarily important for me in my work on Dana Andrews and some of my other film subjects. The author goes on, again, this is Lisa Stead. The book does not seek to offer a linear biographical account of Lee's life and working career. It steps away from ground well-trodden in the various biographies that have been published with remarkable regularity since her death in 1967. Instead, reframing Vivian Lee offers a new interpretation of a classical cinematic and theatrical icon from a distinctly archival perspective. And the archive here is not, again, simply letters, documents. It's material objects as well, which is becoming more and more important, I should add, in the study of Sylvia Plath, for example. Next paragraph. Why Vivian Lee specifically and why now? As of 2019, the Vivian Lee Archive at the Victorian Albert Museum is one of the most regularly accessed of all the publicly available archives in the theater and, and uh, performance collections, which are comprised of several hundred cataloged archives and millions of objects. Use of the Lee Archive has been consistent since it was first opened to the public in 2013. Fans and researchers from all over the world have visited the reading room at Blythe House in Kensington to immerse themselves in Lee's letters and records. Beyond the archive, several film and television productions are currently underway about Lee's life and career, ranging from smaller independent productions to big-budget undertakings featuring major contemporary stars. In the last few years, a substantial number of memorial events, new archival acquisitions, and highly publicized auctions and exhibitions centering on Lee have taken place. Global activities marking Lee's anniversaries, her birth, her death, her work in Gone with the Wind, continue to testify to her ongoing her, for her ongoing fascination for newer 
and older audiences. Despite such popular attention, and despite her high-profile status as a two-time Oscar and Tony Award-winning actress and a highly visible figure in the era of classical stardom, relatively scant academic work has been produced about Lee. Since the opening of the V&A archive in 2013, the first new studies examining her star image and cultural legacy have begun to emerge, and she cites those in a paragraph what those studies are. My own study seeks to contribute to this emergent scholarly interest in Lee's career through a new exploration of a complex network of archival materials. These include correspondence, items of dress and costume, script annotations, photography, press clippings, fan letters, props, audio recordings, film performance, ephemera, and memorabilia. Same thing has been happening with Marilyn Monroe, by the way. This kind of archival reframing also offers a new critical lens through which to interrogate Lee's performance craft and creative labor. Alongside and apart from her star image, in doing so, it generates a broader analytical model for potential reframings of other known and lesser-known female figures in film and theater history. And as I said, I think this is, a, this is uh, underway with, with Marilyn Monroe and many other subjects. Now, while I am on the subject of Marilyn Monroe, she appears uh, in, on a page or two in this book, Reframing Vivian Lee, because Marilyn Monroe was in The Prince and the Showgirl with Laurence Olivier, who was in, um, together with Monroe in The Prince and the Showgirl. In fact, it was done by Marilyn Monroe's production company, not Olivier's production company, Marilyn Monroe's production company, because she was the one who had the access to the capital to do this movie. Otherwise, Olivier couldn't have gotten it done, at least not, not in the kind of budget that he did for the film. Well, I'm reading from page 132 and reframing Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee also interests me because she was in a film, and it's mentioned here, um, in, in, in my biography of Dana Andrews, Elephant Walk. He was in that film with her. I'll have something to say about that in a moment. But here she's talking, here the, the biographer, um, Lisa Stead, is, is uh, describing the press coverage of what was called Vivian Lee's breakdown during the filming of Elephant Walk. She doesn't say... And I don't think it's generally known that her co-star, uh, Peter Finch, was the main co-star. The second lead was Dana Andrews. And uh, he wrote a letter uh, to the British newspapers because she was removed from the film and he objected to that. Uh, he didn't think that was right. He was rather shaky himself. His brother had just died and he was battling alcoholism. He had tremendous empathy for Vivian Lee. He knew Olivier quite well. Uh, and um, disagreed uh, with, with the decision to remove her from the film. Anyway, here's Lisa Stead. Press coverage of her, that is Lee's, breakdown circulated the images to which letter-writing fans were exposed and provided the catalyst for their correspondence. Lee's journey back to England was the point at which her suffering star body was made physical as a public spectacle for general and fan audiences. And of course, I again, I keep thinking about Marilyn Monroe and 
what a spectacle her own suffering was made of even during her lifetime. And the bulk of the archived fan correspondence focuses on the shock of witnessing this moment, that is, of her breakdown. Leading up to her breakdown, there had been various reports from the set of Elephant Walk that highlighted her apparent, er, apparently erratic behavior. American newspapers noted her delay in beginning filming, the rising costs of production, and Lee's difficulties with completing long days of shooting. On March 14, for example, the Arizona Daily Star featured a short piece with the headline, Her Ladyship Gets Haughty on Film Set. It reported that Lee didn't show up for any filming chores on the set of Elephant Walk Monday. Earlier, her ladyship told Paramount she couldn't work after 4 o'clock on Wednesdays and never on Saturdays. This kind of coverage offers some parallels to other major female stars of the period, most notably Marilyn Monroe, who also suffered from mental health problems related to depression and anxiety. Biographer Donald Spoto, or Spoto, suggests that Monroe has often been dismissed as an immature, self-absorbed, lazy dilettante due to media coverage of her chronic tardiness. I have to interrupt right there and say she was not lazy. That was the last thing in the world that Marilyn Monroe was. She was a dedicated professional. But her narrative, her story, got caught up in some of the same conditions that Vivian Lee got caught up in. Media coverage of her chronic tardiness on set, which has been understood in later accounts, is a symptom of her stage fright and obsessive preparation with her acting coach. Exactly. Most recent media coverage continues to dwell upon such unprofessional behavior as symptomatic of her larger character faults. A typically provocative report in the British tabloid, the Daily Mail, in 2011, for example, describes her as, this is Marilyn Monroe, the original airhead, talentless, lazy, and self-absorbed. She wasn't talentless. As I say, she wasn't lazy. And she wasn't self-absorbed in the way that they mean, for sure. The article uses the voices of male professionals to qualify this assessment, quoting the great director Otto Preminger, who reportedly stated that working with Monroe was like directing Lassie also quoting a statement from Olivier in which he apparently described her as the stupidest and most self-indulgent tart he had ever come across. And then it goes on to talk about similar coverage of Lee, Vivian Lee's breakdown. Um, who do you listen to? Uh, how about Josh Logan, who did Bus Stop with Marilyn Monroe, for example, who tried to explain to Olivier how Monroe worked after all, she, that is Marilyn Monroe, had chosen Olivier as director. It was her production company. It was her production. He acted as if it was his. It's not to put the blame all on him, and certainly not to shift it to her, but to do what uh, Lisa Stead is doing in her survey of the archive, is to show how much... Um, how much more is involved in a situation than what is reported, particularly when the points of view are male uh, and don't really understand the circumstances of production or how one becomes Vivian Lee or Marilyn Monroe. 
One of Marilyn Monroe's best friends, Sidney Skolsky, he was, he was alive, but um, he wasn't lucid at the time I was writing my book, but I did speak with his daughter. And one of the things that he told his daughter, who was a friend of Marilyn Monroe's, is he said, Noah knew more about a film uh, in which Mon Marilyn Monroe appeared than Marilyn Monroe, um, not the producers, not the directors. Uh, and this wasn't well understood. They didn't want to under understand it that way. They didn't want to understand what the reasons were for her lateness, because she certainly was late. I think of Billy Wilder, who complained a lot about her behavior in Some Like It Hot. But take a look at Wilder's uh, relationships with actors, not just actresses, with actors. Um, he didn't really understand actors very well at all. Um, I think that's what Humphrey Bogart concluded when he worked with Wilder and Sabrina. Wilder is a great, great director, but there are some directors who really have an understanding of the script, uh, but not of the actors. Some understand it all, as I think John Huston did. So anyway, I recommend this book, Reframing Vivian Lee, because it, it, it's getting at where do, where do people get this, where do biographers get this stuff? How, how does the story get, get um, shaped? Uh, and as uh, the biographer of Nico, Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke says, and as Lisa Stead says as well, how it gets shapes, how it gets shaped depends very much on who's telling the story. And all of these cultural factors that go into uh, the way that these uh, female stars, these these actresses and singers, uh, are are presented to the public. Uh, the last book I want to look at. It's gotten a lot of press, a lot of good reviews. I think it. Uh, I'm I'm only starting it. Um, it looks like a very good biography. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's Michael Nichols, A Life. It's by Mark Harris. Um, I want to read a little bit just from, from chapter one, starting from zero, 1931 to 1944. And you know who I thought of while I was reading what this biographer says about Mike Nichols? You'd never imagine that this person would come into mind. It's someone who I mentioned in the last podcast, uh, Robert Maxwell, the media empire baron. Um, because they, in terms of how Maxwell explained the origins of his own life and what he thought he knew and what was actually true diverge in the biographer's telling of the story you begin to get the same feeling with this biography of Mike Nichols. A lot of people knew Mike Nichols from stage, from screen, television, all sorts of ways. He's a well-known figure, and oftentimes a well-known figure has an origin story, has a myth that he or she wants to project. Starting from Zero, Chapter 1, 1931 to 1944. The book begins this way. In the origin story that Mike Nichols liked to tell, he was born at the age of seven. The first image of himself he chose to conjure for people was that of a boy on a boat, holding his younger brother's hand, 
traveling from Germany to America. They were unaccompanied on that six-day crossing in 1939, their ailing mother still bed-bound in Berlin. Their father was already in New York. His two small sons had not seen him for almost a year. Nichols was not yet real, even to himself. His name was Michael Igor Peshkovsky. Or perhaps it wasn't. Decades later, his brother Robert, looking into his family's history, told him that according to the ship's manifest and the petition for naturalization that was later filed by his father, his name was actually Igor Michael Pachevsky. Igor, a horror movie name. <laughs> Nichols looked at him impassively. Maybe, he said, maybe it was. It didn't matter. Whatever his name when he boarded ship, it was gone by the time he got to New York. This is such an immigrant experience. And again, if you were to look at that Maxwell biography, there's a similar scene, although it occurs at the end of the biography, in which Maxwell learns that the what his what he thought his origin name is probably wasn't what he thought it was. Next paragraph. Nichols turned the transatlantic crossing into a story, his first self-revelation as anecdote, an approach that he would eventually refine into a shield and a disguise, but also into a style of directing. That's marvelous, if it's true. Uh, that's where biography fuses the subject in his work. Let me read that again. Nichols turned the transatlantic crossing into a story, his first self-revelation as anecdote, an approach that he would eventually refine into a shield and a disguise, but also into a style of directing, a means of conveying an idea or a feeling or a circumstance to an actor that he deployed with precision and finesse over a five-decade career in movies and theater. What's marvelous about this is we're getting immediate insights into the character of the subject, and we're getting chronology, and we're getting facts. We're getting, you know, something about the trajectory of his life, a five-decorate career in movies and theater. A lot is happening all at once in this book. He first tried it out on journalists in his 20s, that is the origin story, story of himself, when suddenly everyone wanted to know who Mike Nichols was, and where on earth he had come from. The story he told, droll and wry, with a slight undertow of despair, was that at seven he was packed onto the boat, knowing only two sentences in what would become his new language. Here are the two sentences. I do not speak English. Please do not kiss me. <laughs> in some tellings, he spoke no English at all, and instead wore those two warnings on a penciled sign that was pinned to his clothes before boarding. <laughs> it was this picture, the New Yorker cartoon version of his early life, with a punchline that hinted at both utter solitude and defiant standoffishness that Nichols used to explain his personality to others and to himself. A portrait of the artist as the little prince, alone on his planet and at home nowhere. Well, that's just, isn't that just fantastic writing? Isn't, isn't that the way to just get readers to grip onto your subject? 
Uh, it, it's just a marvelous way. Uh, and again, he's dealing with here, he's not talking about archives exactly, but he is talking about the way stories are told. On the one hand, biography is a story. It's the telling of a life, whether it's the subject's telling in an autobiography or a biographer's. But there are also certain biographies that are quite aware of themselves as biographies. And that is a biography which is sorting out stories that the subjects and others tell about the subject that the biographer is writing about. Uh, to me, that's that this kind of biography, the Mark Harris biography of Mike Nichols, is kind of like the quintessence of what a biography should be. Thanks for listening.